Welcome to the Garden Report back again, less than 12 hours later, packing in shows here. Uh, head of Summer League will be out there starting tomorrow. But first, want to talk about O'Shea Brissett with someone who watched him over the last couple of seasons, someone who knows him well, and a fan favorite here on the Garden Report. Caitlin Cooper is back. They loved you, Caitlin. I had to bring you back. <laughs> Probably the highest approval rating of any guest we've had here. And uh, I'm excited about what the Pacers are doing, too, this offseason. It's a team I enjoyed watching last year. Really, the last couple of years is uh, built a little bit of stability and direction here um, off that DeMontis bonus trade, which I do want to revisit as well later. But O'Shea Brissett, I was really excited when this happened. I covered him at Syracuse for two years. Uh, he was an excellent player there his freshman year. Came into the league with Toronto, uh, developed quite a bit there, got some playing time in Indiana early and often, and uh, you know built on the development he achieved in the G League and in that Toronto system there and really showed some stuff over the last couple of years here. And uh, you're a fan of this signing, I believe. Uh, you, you have some good things to say about him and uh, how he might fit in here in Boston. And uh, what's, what was your overall assessment of his time in Indiana and just him as a player and the time you got to see him there. I mean, I think the trajectory was up and down a little bit. I like what you just brought up about him being in the Toronto system and coming over because when he first came out of the G league and was playing with the Pacers, he was playing for Nate Bjorkren and that's really when he started to pop. And that was kind of one of the last like exciting things you could hold on to at the end of that season was kind of O'Shea Brissett and Edmund Sumner and what they were doing with that team. So he shot the three incredibly well over those last, I think, 20-some games. I think he was around 40%. He was really cutting well off of Sabonis. They had pretty decent chemistry. There was a lot to like there. So then the Pacers obviously retained him, and then they make the coaching change. And he wasn't right around in the rotation right away under Rick Carlisle. It took injuries kind of both the last two seasons, especially this past season. Even during preseason, Kendall Brown had even leapfrogged him during preseason play. Roche was kind of one of the last couple of players off the bench, and it took injuries at the beginning of last season. Aaron Neesmith was out for a little bit. Chris Duarte was out with his ankle injury. Then Andrew Nemhard was out. And then O'Shea kind of had his moment um, against the Raptors where he came in. And he's a guy who can change the game really quickly with his energy. Like, I'm not going to evoke the spirit of Marcus Smart here, but he does play with hustle pumping through his veins. He plays with a lot of ferocity where, you know, he's going to get out and leak out. He's going to crash hard. He's going to keep possessions alive. He does a lot of little things that don't necessarily show up in the box score, and those are a little bit cliche. But I do think that that describes O'Shea Brissett, very timely cutter. I think the biggest thing that was holding him back with the Pacers is that if his three-point shot isn't falling, his finishing, I'm just not convinced that's fully going to come around for him. And that's gone back to his time at Syracuse, I'm sure you remember. But for him, a lot of times stuff that should be a layup ends up being like a hanging bank shot. His finishing on drives has only been like last year, I think it was right around 39%, 38%. Like it's usually in the mid-30s each three of the seasons that he was with the Pacers. So he doesn't adjust very well against verticality or help. He doesn't get a lot of elevation off of one foot. That makes it very hard for him to adjust. So I'm not particularly bullish on that turning around at this given point in time. But when the three falls for him, he can be a useful player. Yeah, and it did not last year. The numbers have slowly creeped down to earth a little bit off that hot shooting year he had at the start it off there in Indiana. And even going back to those Syracuse days, I, I, that was the swing thing for him. If he was hitting threes everything would flow from there and he'd be incredibly effective. 
And then same deal with Syracuse, a down shooting year in year two just led to uneven results across the board for him. Uh, but great physicality, a great NBA body. He's got the seven-foot wingspan. He's got that burst, the athleticism. He's had a few highlight real dunks in his career so far, including against the Celtics. His best career game, many people uh, remember, probably came against the Celtics. Uh, and that's actually kind of telling. That's yeah. actually a good game to go back and look at from last year. If you look at the two games that he played against Boston after Tyrese came over from the trade, I think that would be telling for Celtics fans because the first one when he made six threes and had 27 points, he was being defended by Robert Williams in the way that Emi Adoka schemed where Williams was more of a roamer. And then he also caught the Daniel Tice at four minutes. And that was very beneficial for him to the point where at halftime, they actually switched that matchup, which, you know, as you know, covering the Celtics didn't often do. They ended up putting Tatum on O'Shea coming out of halftime in that second half of that game. Then when they went up to Boston, they had injuries. So I believe they started Goga and Terry Taylor in that game, which put O'Shea at the three. And then he looked a little bit different in the light when he's being defended by threes versus when he can, you know, maybe get something off the dribble going against Daniel Tice. He looks a little bit different. So I do think ideally he, he plays the four for the Celtics next year. Right. And that's a spot that's open now, uh, especially on nights where Al Horford sits, there'll be opportunity there. If they play bigger, they'll probably go with three wings across the perimeter there. And, He'll have that open space playing alongside Tatum and Brown. I do think that's a lineup that they can go to if they want to play more of a wing-oriented lineup rather than double big, which, you know, now that they're stacking up this roster around three bigs, they're probably going to have to do that more often than not. So I'm sure Brissett's minutes will probably come and go along the perimeter. But when you lose Grant Williams, as they did yesterday, that's a real opportunity for Brissett to step up. But there's some key differences between these guys. Uh, he doesn't fit in seamlessly to that Grant role to me just because of the shooting inconsistency. I mean, love or hate Grant, he was 40% last two years pretty steadily from three uh, for the most part there, hovering close to it. Uh, elite catch-and-shoot guy in the corner. And Brissett's just not that. I mean, I don't know what you see mechanically with the shot. It's, it's a little strange to me. It, it kind of goes way over the top and I think it's a little inconsistent sometimes at least remembering his earlier days shooting the three there um, he's capable of really getting hot from there especially he'll be shooting almost exclusively open threes I'm sure with the Celtics here uh, but just mechanically is there something you see there with the three that has led to him being all over the place They've made adjustments to it. In his first season with Rick, because Rick can be a little bit of a shot doctor, they adjusted his hand placement a little bit, and he had better results for a few months, and then you kind of saw him kind of reverting back to the original form again. Um, that's in part why I think he fell back out of the rotation. Guys got healthy at the end of the last season, but once they traded for Wara, I just think that they trusted having somebody out there who could shoot and do more things than O'Shea could, even though O'Shea probably has a slight edge over Wara defensively. Um, but what you just said there, too, about the openness, like when he first came over and was playing when Sabonis was still on the team under Bjorker and almost 70% of his shots, his catch and shoots were uncontested. Yeah. So, and 75% of his shots were either threes, cuts, or offensive rebounds. Like that's really the lane that you want him to stay in. And I do think like offensively from the Celtics perspective, at least for me on the outside looking in, when you were watching in the playoffs is like they – they should have a more dynamic drive and kick offense than what they do a lot of the time. Like they have five guys, they have lineups of five guys that they can put out there. You can dribble pass and shoot. They just don't always get that, you know, going into the blender. So, you know, you know what it looks get... like, you know what it looks like when they're getting those layers of passes and secondary drives mm -hmm. and things like that. And it doesn't happen often enough. 
Yeah, so if they can get the secondary drive, something that O'Shea does really well is he cuts off of secondary drives quite well. So there was a shift. Like, you know, a lot of the cuts that he got, he finished better on cuts when Sabonis was still on the roster because one thing that goes underrated when you have a playmaking big is that that big is occupying the big away from the rim. So he wasn't having to go and finish with, you know, the verticality, like I mentioned before, you know, now when Tyrese is clearly capable of passing people open at the rim, but when it's a point guard doing it versus when it's a center doing it, you have somebody different to contend with around the basket. So that was one thing, but one thing that O'Shea does, even as a cutter is he's very good at collapsing the weak side zone and then opening shots for other people. So, you know, what we call a cut assist, where you drag in that defender and then maybe the guy in the corner gets an open shot. If somebody like Tatum or Brown drives the baseline, he's very timely with that. And he doesn't spoil spacing when he does it. He knows when to get into the lane or, you know, if TJ McConnell is the guy who can really turn the corner out of pistol, if he gets two feet in the lane, O'Shea's a really good 45 cutter and then he can complete those 45 cuts to go ahead and get an offensive rebound. So I do think in the sense that I thought during the playoffs, you could tell at times from Boston, if they got secondary drives, a lot of times people didn't necessarily cut. I think that's something right. that O'Shea would give them. And that's that's something that goes back years with them. They haven't had a lot of great cutters, which is what excites me probably most about Brissett coming in is opening up that uh, part of the game for them. Like Jalen will do it. You know, he'll have spirits where he's great in that area. But a lot of the time, it feels like the system, especially, is holding them back in that. So they just want guys then spotting up, and they want, high, high numbers of three-point shots. And back to your point about the secondary drives and just opening up the offense a little bit more in layers there, they're taking that first three when it's open a lot of the time. So I worry slightly, and I kind of want your take on the offense that the Celtics ran last year, that more often than not when they're finding Brissett in the corner or wherever it might be, they're going to want him taking that three if he's open you know, upwards of 70% of the time, maybe even more with the Celtics team. They're going to want him taking those threes. They're going to want him probably increasing the amount of threes that he takes there. And if he's more of a skilled cutter, and I know we talk about like his inconsistent finishing and such, but I, I don't want him being an exclusive spot of three-point shooter, which they've done with Al Horford, which they did with Grant Williams, who wasn't exceptional going downhill. But if this is a guy who can really open up some stuff getting downhill toward the basket, I want them to take advantage of that. And I'm just not super convinced they will. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a main difference. Like the game that I mentioned when he had came in and scored like six points in a flurry and kind of changed the game against Toronto earlier in the year for the Pacers. He's a guy who, when he stands in the corner, if the Pacers are running pick and roll, will do like a Corey cut or a blade cut where you face cut in front of the guy in the corner as the pick and roll is going. I don't think that Boston does a lot of that during pick and roll action. I think that what you're saying with Missoula is more accurate, that they would rather have those guys spaced so that they can get the higher number of threes. Like O'Shea is not somebody who's going to pass up an open shot. I just think it's more in his nature to be finding little crevices. He's a very resourceful player. So like I said, and they play fast, which will help. Yeah, you know, and, and he transition. does that as well. Like, I mean, he made a joke when Tyrese came over because the Pacers obviously changed their transition frequency up a lot once they had Halliburton that, you know, he transformed into a track star when Tyrese got in the lineup. So he does he does leak out a fair amount. So you have to look at that and give and take with the with the rebounding. The Pacers have been a very poor rebounding team for roughly two years, and that's clearly not on O'Shea Brissett, who is, you know, a fringe rotation player for them the last two years. But um, it's always something you have to look at when you have somebody who leaks out a lot. So the defense... 
I, I want to talk about this because I do find it interesting the direction they've gone in defensively here and what signings like the, these ones say in Brissett and Delano Banton coming from Toronto, um, Grant going out, Marcus Smart going out this offseason. Last year, we definitely saw this Celtics team get away from switching everything and having that be their identity and more toward luring teams in the mid-rangers, dropping uh, – quite a bit at that five position without Horford there getting a seven, three guy or whatever Chris Stapps Porzingis is into that spot. It's going to be helpful there, but they also have a lot of guys in Brissette and Banta now long wingspans guys who are going to guard space really well. I think as much as being switchable, which was more Grant Williams forte, more Marcus smarts forte, the defense Brissette brings to Boston how would you assess it and how do you think it fits in with some of the things they did last year on that end and the direction they seem to be going on that end? Yeah. I mean, O'Shea will not be a one for one swap with what Grant Williams did. Um, He's not somebody, there were times over the last few seasons where the Pacers like to do a fair amount of cross matching where they might like, especially when Sabonis was on still on the team, they might put O'Shea on like Vucevic and let Sabonis guard Patrick Williams, for instance, so that then you can switch on ball screens. But I don't really think that's his strength because he's not the strongest player. He doesn't have a lot of core strength. So if you're up against somebody and he's defending a four, or if he were defending a five, he can get pushed around in the post pretty easily. Um, The Pacers didn't always let that happen. He didn't guard a lot of post-ups last year because they doubled the post a lot if he was defending it. So if you were looking at like, oh, we want to replicate more of what Amy Udoka did, we're going to have O'Shea defending fives like what Grant Williams would do, and we're going to switch those ball screens. I don't know that that's going to be super successful because he doesn't necessarily hang against ones on cross matches either. I think he's more somebody that you want guarding two threes and certain fours depending upon what the skill set is, but... He's pretty effective, I feel, at being a help defender at the nail and as the low man. He has pretty good feel for when to slide over and, you know, come in and out of the sideline, contest shots that way. I think that that's his strength as a defender more so than defending on ball or positionally against, you know, fives or ones. I think that's more what lane you want him in. And you you showed a little bit of that here. I'm going to play that tape you sent over to me uh, of the O'Shea experience here. And if you yeah, I think this summarizes who he is as a player pretty pretty effectively on both ends here. So let's see. Hopefully this comes out clear for everybody. Uh, Yeah, looks good. All right, let's run it. Yeah, so they have Jalen Smith on a switch because the Pacers switch pretty much everything when he's out on the five. So Shea Gilgis-Alexander has the ball, and you'll see O'Shea collapse on the drive, force the ball out of his hands, recover back to Poku on the perimeter. I think that's Poku. And then when they put the ball on the floor, he slides in again. The ball gets loose, and he dives on it because that's just what type of player he is. He's going to play, like I said, with hustle pumping through his veins. But then offensively, when you get to the other end, he catches the ball as the trailer, puts it down on the floor, and then that's when you see some of the struggles that he has. He's just not the most suave with his footwork. He's not getting a lot of elevation off the rim. But he gets his own miss and gets a put back and ends up getting to the free throw line. So I kind of feel like that's a pretty effective summary of what Celtics fans should probably be expecting from O'Shea when he comes over to Boston. Yes, and you love the hustle. You love the rebounding. I always thought he was a strong, strong rebounder going back to the Syracuse days. In fact, he had the most double-doubles. I love this stat. I throw it around all the time. As a freshman, uh, Coleman and Carmelo Anthony, which are two pretty good names to stack up with um, back then. And the defensive intensity was good. I find it pretty impressive that he's translated defensively, given that he came out of the zone. That can be trouble for a lot of guys, and that's why a lot of Syracuse guys, frankly, uh, haven't survived in the NBA. Um, But he brings that good physicality and 
uh, he's helped to translate here. So offense is going to be a big thing. He does need to fit in offensively. if He's going to play for this team, particularly when they have an Al Horford who's so good for what they want to do, who moves the ball well, uh, when they have a Robert Williams who's so effective off the roll and rebounding himself. There's a lot of options in that front court in front of them that play there, but the, losing Grant's a big one. It's not interchangeable, but minutes-wise, there's 10, 20 minutes there for you to steal when Grant played, though Grant was a DMP pretty often late in the year himself, and now Porzingis comes into the fold here, another body. So I'm excited about it, minimum. Can't go wrong. Uh, they got the second option there, which is good for Brissette. Um, so we'll see how this goes. And uh, as far as the Pacers go, I do want to talk a little bit about them because I find them interesting this year. I do think they could take a real step here. Halliburton, lockdown long-term. Bruce Brown comes in at $22 million on a weird deal. You know, a second-year team option. I think that's good for the Pacers. Some flexibility for them to maybe keep him around at that number again next year or work on something long-term if he fits in seamlessly here. Uh, Buddy Heels still there shooting. Obi Toppin comes in, who I love, um, on that rookie deal for a couple seconds. Those seem to be popular assets now, so we'll see how that goes. we got to fill that four spot that was pretty open for Indiana last year. And then Jarris Walker comes in in the draft. So overall, what what excites you most about Indiana's offseason? Because they've been very busy. I think that I would describe it as I like all of those moves individually in a vacuum. They had to spend $18.5 million at least this summer to get them to the salary floor. So they needed to give that money to somebody. And I know that there was a lot of criticism for it being an overpay for Bruce Brown. But like you just said, it's basically a one-year overpay for a guy who's coming from a winning culture who can fit in and is very malleable. I think we'll see him do some of what he did with Denver in terms of he really got on the break, catching hit-ahead passes from Jokic. Tyrese ranks in the top 10 of the NBA and throwing pass-aheads, according to Second Spectrum. Bruce Brown's very effective in transition. The Pacers ranked fourth in transition frequency, and I also think he'll mix in some of what he did with Brooklyn, that the Pacers really like guard screens. I think you'll see Bruce Brown hit the ground running and, and rolling with the Pacers in a lot of ways, and defensively, they just needed an upgrade. They don't have a lot of guys who can defend on ball. I think that he'll be very helpful in that regard. That was a main talking point. The Pacers ranking 26th in defensive rating. They need some. They needed help defensively pretty much everywhere, so that's a big one. Obi Toppin fits right in with the transition points that I just made before. I think all of them are very close, the three of them very close to the top of the league in transition um, efficiency. You're going to see a lot of Obi leaking out, and that kind of goes back to what I just said about O'Shea. The Pacers not a good rebounding team so there might be a little give or take there I do think he can do more than what he was doing in New York's offense because they had Julius Randle they had a center who in Mitchell Robinson who needs to be in the dunker spot his reality will be a lot different wherein I think that Tyrese will augment his strengths and Miles will accommodate some of his weaknesses better than what you saw in the New York Knicks that being said I have some questions about how I like all of the moves in combination I support all of them individually I like that they drafted Jairus Walker I don't know. I think that they're going to be trading off what they had in spacing last year in a lot of ways. It's going to be a big difference going from having Andrew Nemhard in the starting lineup, Buddy Heald in the starting lineup, Aaron Neesmith at the four spot, to going to potentially Benedict Matherin, Bruce Brown, and Obi Toppin. In terms of even if those guys are knocking down shots, the defensive perception for them is going to be different than what you saw 
obviously with what Buddy Heald can do and what his gravity is. So um, I think they're going to have to tinker with lineups. But as the people saw last year, you know, they started Jalen Smith at the four to begin the year. Midway through the year, Aaron Neesmith was starting instead because that's just what worked better for the team. So Rick Carlisle has shown that he's willing to adjust. So if stuff isn't necessarily working for them, I think that they'll do a lot of tinkering. And, you know, the Pacers kind of have to add people on the margin. They're not going to be signing, you know, top tier guys. So they have to overpay to get veteran players. You have to, you know, take a deal like Obi Toppin and hope that he pops in a different environment. So um, I think individually, all of it, all of it, you know, you give them a thumbs up for most of it and you hope that it works out in the aggregate. Yeah. And that can be tricky. They're comfortable with it. They've had to do that the last couple of years, <laughs> almost as much as any other team. The amount of guys that have been in and out of this lineup has been, um, pretty staggering over the last couple of years here. And you look at this roster again, a lot of these guys are back, a lot of new faces, as you said, and how do you manage that as a coach? Carla is pretty good at it, but it's a blessing and a curse having, let's say 13 guys potentially who could play here, vied to play on any given night, depending how, how, how the rookies uh, pan out. And a lot of guys last year, like you said, who, were shooters who were spacing oriented healed. I thought Neesmith made some real progress last year with this group. And if he's heading back to the bench, maybe more limited minutes, that's not something that suited him well in Boston. Looking back on those days, like he needed that shot. He needed that, those shots, those rhythm, the rhythm overall uh, to get going effectively. And they needed a little bit more at the four for sure. Yeah. But there's a give and take, like you said, between, guys who space the floor well at that position, even if they're a little undersized for it and guys who might bog down this offense a little more. But when you shoot the ball like Turner did last year at times, that can help. Yeah. I mean, Miles definitely had the best season of his career last year. It made a difference for him to be a five defended by fives. And that's kind of an underrated piece of this, because if you look at his shooting splits over the last two seasons, when he was defended by forwards by comparison to when he was defended by centers, it's like a difference of him being a 40% three point shooter to being like a 32% three point shooter. And that was in part why they took Jalen Smith out of the starting lineup is because there was a lot of teams. They went on a seven game road West coast road trip at the end of November. And you'd start seeing, okay, Zubots is guarding Jalen Smith now. Sabonis is guarding Jalen Smith now. And those guys were just sagging off and then they were switching pick and rolls with Miles. So that impacted him. So you kind of have to ask the question for the Pacers, like, is it inevitable that opposing teams are going to cross match Miles or is there something that you can do about it? And is it the best thing for the team if he's having his best possible season? And that isn't necessarily a knock on Miles, but like, do you have to play so small with like Aaron Neesmith at the four that defensively now you're hampered in certain ways where you're having to double all over the place and you're giving up too much on the glass. So I think that they kind of went in the other direction of that, but now they're at risk again. Like I said, if Obi Toppin isn't hitting shots from the perimeter, it's possible that they're going to cross match that. It's possible that fives will start guarding Obi Toppin. And, you know, you have to ask too, like, you know, Obi's going to be up for his rookie extension that will have to be something they consider before the season starts. And you just drafted Jairus Walker and you're hoping I would guess when you take somebody at number eight, that they will eventually be a starter for you. And Obi's coming from a system in New York where they basically never switch. Like Tibbs doesn't run a switching scheme. So if you look at the numbers for him, I think he switched on like 18% of the screens that he defended. That's going to be, vastly different with the Indiana Pacers. Nisma switched on like 79% of screens at the four. And even if you look at Jalen, he switched on over like 35%. So you're gonna have to do a lot of switching and that's more Jairus's strength more so than Obi's. I mean, we'll wait and see what Jairus looks like here in summer league. But to this point, from what I've seen of both of them, I would trust Jairus to switch out more than Obi Toppin. Right. And I'm excited about Toppin because he didn't play enough in New York, frankly, uh, to see what he's capable of here. 
I have my doubts about the shooting with him. Uh, I think it's you know it's going to be more slashing, rolling, whatever it might be, depending on the position he plays there. So the four is going to be tricky for him if he if he doesn't prove to be a great shooter here. Though playing next to Turner, a guy who spaces it. No, it will it will be helpful for Obi. It's just a question of Miles being marginalized back on the perimeter and how he handles right. that. But I mean, the fit for Obi Toppin is definitely there. Right, and you see him starting right off the bat at the four next to him. That's my expectation, just because of what they just did with Benedict Matherin. I mean, Jarris mm-hmm. is a higher feel player than Benedict Matherin is, but they brought Benedict off a be- off the bench and coached him harder and wanted him to earn those minutes. So I kind of have my suspicion that that is the same trend that will follow and that Obi Toppin will be. The You're strong. right, Matherin, Toppin, Brown. You know, Brown had a great shooting year in Denver, but I don't think many look at him as a shooter specifically. Like his yeah. his best plays downhill toward the rim all three of those guys really is that's the case so that will put Turner back on the perimeter and Halliburton's a guy who's going to make it work with almost anyone offensively but there are a lot of you know I think you described it well like how does this all come together these are all great individual pieces here but this team as a whole how do they make it work because one thing I'm going to say here you know just to make it matter for the Celtics audience here this team was the sixth seed last year Right up until that day, Taliburton went down and was in and out of the lineup with injuries there. So they had something that worked to some degree last year until, you know, they started taking a step back and, you know, taking the long view there down the stretch of the season. So this is going to be a little different. They've reinforced the roster definitely here. Halliburton, I think, is going to be a guy who raises anybody's level playing alongside him. But is this a fringe playoff team? Is this a team that could make a little noise in that bottom half of the east here they were last year in my view and now working in some new guys might complicate that and the east is just a little bit better as a whole it looks like this year yeah if you look at just the games when miles and tyrese were both available i think they had the same win percentage and net rating just barely negative 0.5 i believe is what the miami heat had last year so that is not me saying that the indiana pacers are going to the nba finals next year but that they they would have probably been in position to be you know a, a fringe play-in team maybe frisky in the play-in tournament maybe they get into the playoffs at where they were last year i do think that they made upgrades we'll have to see how it all comes together when they're out on the court obviously but i mean i do think that this could solidly be a playing team maybe a playoff team because like you said before Tyrese went down they just never really regained that same magic that they had and I don't think that was all solely on the fact that they didn't have Tyrese anymore I do think that them playing you know eight guards a night next to Miles Turner and what they had changed up with their defensive scheme I started noticing when they went one and nine in the stretch when Tyrese was injured that teams were finding little hacks defensively for how to attack that you know they were playing for instance the Oklahoma City Thunder and they were putting they started putting Miles last season a lot more on low usage wings and using him more as a roamer because they needed to switch to keep him low around the basket. So like they used Josh Giddy and posted Miles Turner. That's a very unusual thing to see a guard posting a big, but that occupied Miles outside of the paint. Then they could run split action and it's guys just, you know, Shea's just getting a cut straight to the rim because Miles isn't there. You can't expect Buddy to be the low man. So there were little, like I said, faults that were starting to get uncovered in addition to them just not having Tyrese to be the engine of everything they do on that end of the floor. But 
um, yeah. And then just looking at the bench stuff, like what you mentioned with Buddy, you know, he's going to be in a contract year, most likely sliding back to the bench. Andrew Nemhard, I felt really popped. I mean, he's an underrated player. Yeah, who it's I another really guy adore. that needs to play. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And if, if you're looking at starting Benedict and Bruce and Obi potentially, and Andrew slides back to the bench, what are you doing with TJ McConnell? Because at that point, I feel like Andrew really needs to be the reserve point guard and running offense because that guy has really can make some heady passes out of the pick and roll and he's going to need those opportunities. So um, they're going to have stuff to figure out for sure. Rotationally. I got two more big things to talk about here. Uh, a year ago, we were discussing how Malcolm Brogdon might fit in with the Celtics after a trade yes. between these two teams. And he went out and won the six man of the year award, made a big impact in Boston, stayed healthy right up until the end. And then he ends up in a trade to the Clippers for Porzingis that falls apart, has been in rumors nonstop since, has two years left on that deal, a hefty deal that sent him out of Indiana last summer. So I do want to assess his future in Boston and kind of where he's at in his career year out of Indiana here. But first, a quick break for our sponsor. Yes, of course, support the sponsors. Also, while you're here, while you're in the chat, go check out Caitlin's work. She's now writing on Patreon at patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote, you can go over there and subscribe to her work uh, covering the Pacers better than anyone. Um, and she has for a long time. It's stunk seeing you let, get let go. Um, I didn't need cornrows there, Caitlin. But uh, the way people rallied around you was really awesome after that. <laughs> I remember the tweet you sent out got like a million views or well over that. Um, so I hope everything's been going well over there ever since. Yeah, an adjustment to switch platforms for sure. I think a little bit of the million views had to do with Tyrese just being a very nice human being and sharing that tweet and and being willing to support my work. He's, you know, been tremendous. I never asked for any of that, and he's just done that because that's what type of person he is. But, yeah, back to Malcolm Brogdon, though. You know, he definitely took a step forward with the Celtics by taking a step back, right? You know, I think that we talked about when I was on here that he was a guy who was going to need to slot into more being, you know, a spot in a spot up role where he can attack straight line drives, shoot off the catch more, have less burden to be manning an entire offense on his own. And now you kind of look and without Marcus smart, he's going out to Memphis Porzingis is coming in. I presume they're going to start Derek white at the point guard, but you know, does Malcolm need to take on more of that again um, without Marcus being there? And can you rebuild the bridge? I think is a question that you kind of have to ask, like, you know, Malcolm now knows that you are pretty much going to trade him to the Clippers. How do you get all that back together? And I think in the past, I've kind of looked at that and been like, Oh, you know, you can't unring that bell, but just to relate this to the Pacers and maybe to make Celtics fans feel a little bit better, depending upon how they view Malcolm Brogdon at the current juncture, the Pacers did go out and give an offer sheet last summer to DeAndre Ayton. I myself was very skeptical that Miles Turner would still be on the roster after that happened, let alone do a renegotiation extend and have him come out afterwards and, you know, be tweeting like it was always you, Indiana, and be very committed to staying here, even though they went out and tried to actually upgrade his position. So um, you never know how guys are going to react to that. For Miles, everything shook out really well, and, you know, he formed really good chemistry with Tyrese, and it was best for him financially to take the shorter term deal where he could get out later on it was good business for the Pacers to re-sign him as well so you know maybe maybe something happens with Malcolm there where if they do need to keep him on the roster 
it, it all works out okay and he's all right with the role. I don't know. I, to me, it kind of seems like it's going to be the case where they're not going to be quite done yet this summer, though. I don't know Doesn't exactly seem what like it. on that and what reporting. It kind of seems to me like you're still going to end up moving Malcolm and hopefully you get another ball handler next to Derek White because, to me, in addition to everything you're losing from Marcus Smart defensively, and I know he took a slight step back from you know his defensive player of the year season, He's the most creative passer on that roster, in my opinion, from a playmaking standpoint. So you're going to have to replace some of that because this offense to me was already a little bit, you know, drive, pass, catch, hold, maybe drive again. And if you don't have Marcus there to be doing some of that in the pick and roll, you're going to have to address that some way, shape or form, whether that's Brogdon going back to running some offense, which he's not the most creative pick and roll passer. He's kind of more of a guy who finds the open man. He doesn't necessarily pass people open when he's running the pick and roll. And that includes his time when he was playing with Sabonis. But, you know, you're either going to have to repair what that was or you're going to have to flip him and hope that you can get somebody else to fulfill some of that next to Derek White, in my opinion. Yeah, and shot making masked a lot of that stuff you mentioned there last year for him. It's just, just a incredible shooting year. And he, in the past, playing next to stars, uh, namely Giannis back in the day, the 50, 40, 90 years, it felt like everything he put up last year went in. And that's why it still intrigues me because, you know, the name of the game at the end of the day is putting the ball in the basket. And he did that at a high level, specifically from three. That scoring drove his six-man case. And he was just red hot all year. I I was astounded. Guys go have their ups and downs throughout the year. He really felt hot the whole way through, right up until that injury. And it, the room he had to operate with around Tatum and Brown translated into a great scoring year for him. Like you said, the passing impact didn't really happen here uh, with the ball in his hands. Obviously, he was off the ball quite a bit. Wasn't always uh, the ma- main ball handler on the course, specifically in crunch time. You know, whether he was out there with Smart or Tatum or whoever it might be, those guys often had the ball in their hands over him, which is great. You know, you can hit him on that drive and kick, and he's going to hit those shots. But it, it impacted what he was able to do from a point guard perspective, and he will have to step back into that role here if he does stay on the roster. But defensively, and I, I harped on this all year, and at this point, what you're losing in Smart, I do think you kind of need to retain with Brogdon on the roster here, unless you're able to upgrade on him. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to. They'll have to get a little creative there. But defensively, the numbers were bad especially in isolation, uh, really struggled keeping guys in front of him. I don't think he looked great movement-wise on that end. He's never been the most fluid, um, you know, side-to-side guy defensively. But he, he struggled in a big way this year on that end. And that at times, I think, took from this team's defensive identity the year before. Strong in the post, you know, if he was defending bigger guys, he could really keep them in front of him, use that low center of gravity, strong core, and defend up positions when they were switching. But on the perimeter against those quicker guards, it really ended up being a tough year for him defensively. But offensively, he was so red hot and making shots left and right that it ended up working out as a net positive in my mind. And I I don't want to see them just dump him salary-wise. I still think there's a net positive from having Brogdon around, not only on the court, but off the court, that I think they need. 
And I think that's a good point, too, because when you're bringing it over Przingis, you know, there's a difference between even just looking at Marcus Smart and Derek White as defenders. You know, Marcus Smart's really more somebody who's going to get up under your skin. He's going to skirt screens, whereas Derek White's somebody who's going to guide you over the top of the screen and funnel. And in some ways, that will fit nicely next to Przingis because you're going to have to be funneling more of the action to him because this defense is going to become more interior-based versus perimeter-based. So, you know, if it's Brogdon, that almost makes things tougher for him just from what I know of him and his time with the Pacers is everything you just said, I think is really accurate. He struggles against quicker guards. Um, his defensive positioning at the point of attack isn't always good. He's not, he doesn't always come out ready to defend. He's flat footed. So if you're somebody that you're going to be putting Porzingis and drop, and you're going to be needing to chase over, that's not going to be Malcolm Brogdon's best role. He's better suited to a switching defense where like what you said, where you can switch, you know, a one, four ball screen. And then because he is strong, if you get him in the post, like, you know, there was times where the Pacers would be like, Brogdon, you're just guarding Carl Anthony Towns tonight. And like, he could kind of hold his own because, or, you know, you're just guarding Pascal Siakam tonight. Like that's kind of more his lane is defending bigger wings and being able to use his physicality in that regard. So if they're going to be altering the scheme at all to be accommodating Przingis and making this more of, you know, a drop coverage, more like what they saw last year, but even more so with Przingis, I actually think Brogdon might struggle a little bit more with that than, you know, if he had been in the original Yudoka scheme more so. Yes. And that, that combination of white and Brogdon, could help him a little bit, maybe playing up a position on the wing against some bigger teams, um, not having to guard that point guard at the point of attack. Because White, all defensive guy last year, um, shifty enough to stay with those quicker guards. Going way back to the finals, I thought he did about as well as you possibly could against Steph Curry in that series up until you know Curry had that legendary game four and just broke through anything they put in front of him there. So, uh, yeah, the funneling to Porzingis is going to be important, no doubt about it. That's how they want to play. They want to alert teams into those mid-rangers and play the um, play the percentages there. And they were number two defensively last year at the end of the day playing that. But things got shaky into the playoffs uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, Bryden got hurt in the East Finals, which killed him. He really couldn't even play at that point. And there's still a lot of mystery about how healthy he is. Seemed to reportedly play a part in uh, that deal falling apart with the Clippers there. But the shift in this defense to me is still the big story going into this year. This was a team that put, did historic things under Doka that year defensively, playing a different way. Now it seems like they're going toward more of an analytical approach to that end, and they still have great personnel to pair with that. I mean, like you said, Porzingis running that drop is probably about as good of a defender you can get in that spot size-wise. Uh, namely there you're not playing drop with Horford as much who will let guys show over the top of him a lot and you're playing bigger across the perimeter I suspect it's going to be smart Brown Tatum Horford Porzingis to start games and you know have Horford guarding the pick and roll or whatever it might be across the perimeter depending on what it's going to be there and Porzingis dropping and I do like Horford switching across perimeter guys still if there is that help behind them but it's it's interesting just because it's so different from what this team did two years ago, especially losing Smart and Grant, your two switchiest guys. And I'm sure they're going to have great regular season production on that end, just doing these things. But when it comes down to playoff defense against some of the better offensive teams in the league, I'm curious how this is going to end up looking. Well, I think that a tiny thing too that probably, I don't know how much it's getting talked about, but 
there's going to be a bit of a physicality deficit here too. Because I mean, like you were talking about earlier with Grant Williams, you know, not that he's a Jokic stopper, but he was a guy that you could put on Jokic. Like they don't really have a lot of physical defenders in that regard on this roster, because that's not who Porzingis is. I don't really think that's who Robert Williams is. I don't think that's really what you want him doing. And even just like on the, on the minor fringe signings, like what I said before, like that's not who O'Shea Brissett is either. He looks physically like that's what he should be, but his core strength isn't there to really be holding up in that type of regard. Yeah. These are, these are positional defenders as well too. Yeah. Yeah. These are positional defenders. They're going to fill a lot of space. They're going to guard the important parts of the floor. But when it comes to having that guy who's going to stop the one who's, you know, running the pick and roll, the star who's taking all those shots and backing guys down, like a Jimmy Butler per se, the big guys in the East, as you mentioned there, Horford's still, I think, capable. I mean, Horford's gotten so much criticism for his postseason. I really don't get it. I mean, he was putting some tough spots out there and the minute load on him, I think, just wore him down. Versatility-wise and strength-wise, that stuff you mentioned with Grant, I think he can fill a lot of that but, uh, still, especially if they manage him well throughout the course of the regular season. But you're right, it's it's that physicality factor and really bringing the attack to the offense that I think is so different from what this team did a couple of years ago. Now it's going to be more about taking away the rim, taking away threes, and you know, trying to play the percentages with that mid-range shot against opposing teams. But as we saw in the playoffs, some teams are comfortable with that shot. And if they can hit it and get hot enough from there, like the Heat did, and some of these other teams did, the Hawks did it round one, that can hurt you. And it's tough to adjust away from that if that's going to be your bread and butter and you're banking on teams missing those. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, like I didn't get to hear Brad Stevens's press conference or the one with Porzingis when he came over, but it just kind of feels to me like this was a play for you know, we've seen what we're doing running out these, you know, five out or five guard lineups with supposed dribble pass and shoot guys. And maybe we've kind of topped out with what we can be with that. So, you know, you go over and you get Przingis and you're more so going all in on scoring and hoping that you can have different modes of attack when you get into the playoffs. I know that they talked about, you know, being able to use Przingis in the post and that isn't really an area that the Celtics necessarily had. So if you do get up against a switching team, you have somebody you can throw the ball to. And that's certainly going to be something interesting to watch. Cause I'm just, I'm remembering all the studying I did of Rick Carlisle before he came into the Pacers and watching that playoff series between the Mavs and the Clippers. And obviously Porzingis will be used differently with Boston than what was the case alongside Luka Doncic, but just remembering like, how much the switching bothered Przingis. Like, you know, I remember Terrence Mann pushing Przingis clear outside the pinch post and him taking like post-ups from the nail and trying to just shoot over the top. And I think with the Wizards, you did see Przingis getting closer to the basket where the average distance of his post-ups really did go down. And that's not really something that the Celtics necessarily were able to tap into last year. So it kind of feels like that's just the play that they're kind of understanding, hey, we might take somewhat of a step back defensively, but we're hoping for the offensive versatility. Maybe you can run a little bit of stuff through Porzingis where maybe you're using him at the elbow and he can throw some backdoor passes now and again, or maybe you could run some delay where you're not going to do a ton of that with Robert Williams. I have seen him do it, but you're not going to do it, you know, regularly. Plus right. guys, if, if you're running Porzingis in, del- in delay, defenders have to play up against him because he's actually a threat to shoot. Whereas if Robert Williams is doing it, even if he is capable of throwing the passes, you don't have to guard him. So, you know, it does give you a little bit of a different look. I'm guessing that's what the calculus was for Brad Stevens and why he made that move as controversial as it was, or at least it seemed controversial from the outside looking in. It's hard to, it's hard to let go of smart in those nine years and everything he did here. And 
yes, the returns grew a little inconsistent over the last three years here, but at his best, he he was a big-time impactful player, and I think that's going to help out Memphis a lot if he is playing at his best there. It's a great contract, too. Uh, you know, there's intangible things with this team. Clearly, I mean, this team a year ago was as skilled as any in the NBA, and even down 0-3, the betting odds and everything else, like the perception around this team was that they just figure it out right up until they didn't. And now it's another talented roster. They gained some strengths in other areas. They, you know, let up some weaknesses in areas by giving up some other stuff there. They might not be done. We'll see. Uh, but there's still a lot of questions from an intangible standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, stuff that's kind of hard to gauge, um, you know, and the basketball is going to play out. And if Porzingis does open up other areas of the game and offensive flexibility, and they want to be an offensive team, it'll probably work out if he stays healthy. And that's another factor here. Uh, he's been injured pretty much every year of his career, even a relatively healthy year last year. Brogdon, tough to gauge his health going into this year. Seems like he won't have surgery, but you never know. So I don't know. I, I get why they did what they did here. I do wonder what it means for Rob. I mean, everyone's still kind of imagining the best version of Rob, which has been limited by injury and limited by, you know, offensive limitations uh, for him. And it just feels like, unfortunately, unless, you know, you can think of some way that Rob and Porzingis could, you know, coexist on the court together. This probably just puts him in more of a backseat on this roster, which for a guy making like 10, 11, 12 million dollars a year here. That is realistically what you can expect from a guy like that. Some secondary limited minute bench production, some energy off the bench, maybe playing off the bench helps him stay healthier here. But a lot of people did always imagine something bigger, something more impactful and more involved from Robert Williams, which might never pan out here if Porzingis has taken that spot from him. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are times where you could play double big. I mean, it doesn't hurt being able to put tension on defenses where if, you know, you have Tatum dribbling off a double drag and you can have Porzingis who, like, he had a career shooting year last year, but it's not always fair to him to just look at the three-point percentage because he does take difficult shots in terms of he is somebody who's going to shoot from 30 feet. And there is a value to having somebody at the five spot who can – pull from that deep. I am one who typically tends to say that a five does not really stretch the defense. They simply get to take open shots. I don't think teams respond to that in the way that people necessarily think they do. But when you have Persingas... <laughs> You're never seeing a five face guarding a guy at the three-point right, line, really. Right, like typically that's what teams are willing to give up and it just behooves you if you're able to hit those shots. But in the case of Persingas, I think you can see some tension there because he is somebody who's going to pull from so many feet behind the three-point line that you do defend a little bit higher. So, you know, if you can roll Rob as the first screener and pop Persingas as the second screener, I do think that there could be some utility in that. I don't know that that's something that they'll go to all the time. Time, but it's always a good thing to be able to have different types of lineups that you can throw out there and use. So um, it remains to be seen. I'm intrigued by it. It's always intriguing to get a 7-3 guy on the roster who's as skilled and can do as many things as Porzingis can. And he was great last year. So there's always an intrigue to getting that large of a presence on the court. And you could just see the way you, you said you didn't um, see Steven's press conference. He was glowing. Like, <laughs> he was just smiling nonstop. You could tell this was his blockbuster move, his first big trade. And, uh, he, you know, it could be the one that sh one that sh shakes this team to get over that hump and win the championship. They didn't have a big to really do now um, if he plays to that potential. So we'll see how it pans out. Before we let Caitlin go, do want to briefly revisit the Tyrese Halliburton-DeMontis Sabonis trade. 
one of the more controversial of recent years, uh, recent NBA history, really. Uh, Kings got highly criticized for it. Ended up working out decently for them last year, and the Pacers did extend Halliburton uh, this past week here. So he'll be that centerpiece for Indiana going forward, a guy that I do think has uh, future NBA potential. First, one more brief break here. All right, Halliburton, Sabonis. We kicked around for a long time, Caitlin, what that Sabonis deal would ultimately look like, and Halliburton comes flying in a couple, of, I think a day before the deadline, whatever it was. It was a little earlier than the deadline. And the impact ended up being immediate. He ends up becoming this rookie max contract extension level guy who already, hard to imagine he's still playing on that rookie deal um, just with how impactful he's been here over these last couple of years with Indiana. He, he's he's quickly become, I think, mine and many other favorite play, favorite young player in the league. And it's not hard to imagine him, especially with some of the personnel improving around him now. Him really taking a leap over the next couple of years here is not just one of the best young players in the league, but one of the best players in the league, period. Like He just blends scoring and facilitating at that point guard position in a way that's pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing that you can say about Tyrese is obviously, you know, at one point in the season, he was averaging 20 and 10. He was leading the league in assists. He had like a three game stretch where he didn't commit a turnover, which I think sometimes can go underrated. I mean, his his defense is definitely going to need to improve. I don't know how many people realize exactly how much he was getting targeted at the back end of that season. And that's why they really needed to make upgrades defensively. Um, Made stuff tough when he and Buddy were both out on the court, though I will say that, you know, they outscored teams. Um, when both of them were out there very narrowly, which was better than their overall team net rating, but they lost the minutes, whether it was just Tyrese or it was just Buddy. But the fact that he doesn't turn the ball over made a pretty big impact when they he was out for 10 games. Like they got worse defensively, even though Tyrese himself isn't a great on-ball defender because, you know, they weren't making as many shots. So they weren't able to set their defense as well. And they he, they were turning the ball over a lot more. So he takes care of the ball. But I think, you know, him being a star who plays a very inclusive form of basketball, you know, he was very, I think he led all guards and passes, led all guards and touches. He has the ball a lot, but he doesn't dominate the ball in the way that he does it. He will start possessions away from the ball. Um, that was in part why, you know, him playing with Andrew Nemhard was kind of intriguing to me over the long run is being able to have these two guards playing together at the same time who both are very high feel heady passers so that, you know, if he gets to a place in a playoff scenario down the road when the Pacers are good enough to be a player off team if he is you know seeing extra attention that they would have a secondary playmaker and because he's such an effective shooter that's actually something you can do with him and I think that that's one of the strongest things the Pacers have going forward is there's not a lot of players you can come up with that you'd be like that guy won't fit with Tyree Saliburin like it's very hard to come up with stars that you're like that's that's not going to work like certainly the defense will matter but he blends with almost every type of player that you think with because he is able to play and manipulate the pick and roll and he can play off ball. So that really is a strength for them for sure. So one of the big benefits Bruce Brown, uh, God, maybe the biggest benefit any role player can play with in the league is playing next to Nikola Jokic and everything he allowed Bruce Brown to do. You knew from day one, almost it was a seamless fit because you saw the signs in Brooklyn playing next to Durant and the rest there, even, you know, on their shorthanded nights, he would do some really good things on the roll there. Uh, Also a guy who blends some playmaking. If you go way back to the Miami days and the Pistons days, like he came into the league as a point guard and he's just molded himself into a guy who's so flexible 
So he's leaving Jokic. There's no doubt that's going to hurt him to some degree. It's, it would hurt anyone. But he is, as you said, about to take the floor with Halliburton. How do you see Halliburton opening up Brown's game and taking advantage of getting him in, into that offense? Yeah, I mean, in Denver, it was all for him about cutting. He did way more pick-and-roll ball handling in Denver than what he had done in Brooklyn, and then a lot of transition, just really loading up in transition and catching those, you know, water polo-style passes from Jokic and really just shoving the ball down opponents' throats. He improved his his footwork on finishing moves where you would see, you know, more of an in-and-out dribble, some push crosses, more nuance for him in that regard. I think, you know, he's going to be able to still catch all those. Tyrese was a few spots below Jokic in throwing those passes, and he loves to push the ball, whether it's off a make or a miss. If it's off a make, you'll see him always peering over his shoulder. He always, he doesn't want to waste any seconds before he even has the inbound pass. He's looking and surveying the lay of the land for where his teammates are. So Bruce right away will fit in right, you know, like a glove there. And then I think that they will take some of what you saw in Brooklyn, where he would be used as a screener for Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving at times and slip into space. I think, you know, the Pacers like to run certain sets. They call them corner where the guy will come up out of the corner and screen for Tyrese. If they don't get anything on the slip there, then they reverse it. And a lot of times Mathern will come up out of the corner into a handoff and then he'll attack. And Bruce kind of has this quirky thing to his game where he shot the ball way better from the right corner over his career than the left. Like I'm talking, it's like a 20% swing on not like super low volume in the left corner either. So, you know, I think that you'll see him coming up screening for Tyrese in the right. You can have Benedict over in the left, ready to attack second side. I think the three of them will fit pretty well there. And then just having another guy that, you know, if Tyrese does get blitzed and then you can put Bruce in the short roll, he can make some connective passes. I think that that's maybe not something like what you said before him being a point guard in the past. Like if he catches a second side, he can attack baseline and kind of manipulate the weak side zone and make a pass there too. And that the Pacers didn't have a ton of guys. They were, they were pretty high up in drives and passes last year, but they don't have a ton of guys who can actually, you know, shift defenders if they catch the ball and move it. Like that's not really who Benedict is. He's still somebody who's processing how to make kickouts. His first inclination when he catches the ball is to catch and drive and get to the basket. So um, Bruce will give them that as well. And then just defensively, you know, Tyrese is a guy who needs to defend off ball. He's better navigating pin downs and using his off ball instincts and putting his arms in passing lanes. He tends to get overpowered at the point of attack, but you can put Bruce Brown at the point of attack. You can, you know, give him some spot possessions here and there against fours. And they just really didn't have a lot of that last year. So some defensive malleability as well. This is an exciting team, of course. I'm sure you're thrilled to see Sabonis doing all he's doing in Sacramento. That's a real team now. That combination of Fox and Sabonis is about as exciting as it gets in terms of basketball combinations out there. Uh, I've always loved Sabonis. I would have loved him here in Boston, unlocking Tatum and Brown, uh, the way he's done for Fox and others out there in Sacramento. This really is, just to wrap this up, but as even of a trade so far, and we'll see how it plays out long term. They extend Sabonis as well here, which is another um, you know, full circle moment for this trade. But both teams just have to be leaving that trade. And this almost never happens. Loving it. And I'm sure yeah, because... some Sacramento fans lament it. But these two teams were in worse, more awkward positions. And now they both really seem to be moving in good directions. And clear identities that are being built with those players in mind, for sure. I mean, that's something about Sabonis. People watch Jokic win the title, and, like, Sabonis isn't Jokic. Like, we don't need to put him clear on that level. But in the sense that 
the Pacers did not have the pieces when he was still here to be able to run the type of handoff offense that the Sacramento Kings are running. The comparison that I would use is when he was still playing for the Pacers and he was still getting what numbers he was getting, which I thought was even more impressive. It was like watching a fountain with a burned out pump because they just didn't have guys to be able to run those types of sets. And then, you know, he goes to Sacramento and the water gets turned back on and you get to see exactly what all he can do. And, you know, Mike Brown taking some of those Warriors concepts and implementing them with Sabonis, some of the stuff that they did with Draymond and Golden State has really suited them well. And like, I don't often care about being right. And I did say at the time that, you know, if it were me, if it were me, I would not trade Tyrese Halliburton in the second year of his rookie contract. But I did point out that the way that trade was getting, um, critiqued at the time I did think that was going to look bad in retrospect because I just don't think people had watched Sabonis enough or realized what he was capable of to think that the trade was as bad as it was so now he's on a team where he's you know definitely being thought of as the fulcrum and how they're building a roster around him with everything about him in mind clear down to you know they get Chris Duarte a week ago Chris and Sabonis had kind of started developing a wavelength in the wake of Chris of Doug McDermott leaving. They both speak Spanish. They're both very close, good friends. And now it looks like he's going to be joining Sabonis out in Sacramento. And the same with Tyrese. Like the Pacers are very much building this team with him in mind in a way that they never did with Sabonis or even Victor Oladipo to a degree. It was more about them finding a complementary core. Now they're fully behind. Tyrese is our franchise player. He is our star. He dictates what our identity is. And we're going to go out and find players who fit that identity and fit us. So definitely two different shifts and it's great to see both franchises benefiting from a deal at the same time. I'll be excited for the first Celtics Pacers game next year. Seeing this team in person, of course, out at summer league, it is an interesting uh, summer league team here for Indiana. Just pulling it up real quick. Who's going to be out there. Of course, and Andrew Ijax. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Right? Rotation players. Yeah, they must want to work on something, right? And I'm sure some of those more experienced guys won't play a ton. That's just how it goes. But, man, they really are sending the uh, <laughs> the, the full sure. roster out there. Yeah, Matherin, Walker, Nemhard, <laughs> Kendall Brown is going. Woodard, Isaiah Wong's in on the two-way deal. I liked him at Miami. Jackson, Shepard, a great shooter coming in. Well, that's to watch for from a, uh Indiana perspective. The Boston roster, not as much. I mean, J.D. Davison's a little interesting. As a long-term developmental prospect. Michael Mulder's a two-way guy who intrigued me a little bit last summer league with Miami. Some main guys, some overseas guys. Yeah, not a ton on the Boston front. So I'll be bouncing around to different teams. I am in summer league starting tomorrow. We'll have a post-game show here on the Garden Report after it's back-to-back game Saturday, Sunday for the Celtics. So we'll bring you a discussion on both games Sunday afternoon. Stay tuned for that as well as uh, – more on the ground stuff from Celtics All Access here. Uh, for now, that's the Garn Report for this week. Caitlin, thanks for stopping by. Always, always enjoy talking to you again. Check her out at patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote, I will throw that in the description as well. Great to see you doing well and uh, always welcome here on the Garn Report. Appreciate the time. Hey, thanks again for the invite and thanks to all the Celtic fans who continue to put up with me coming over with all the players that keep seeming to be connected to both of these two teams. Absolutely. All right. See you guys.